Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to Catholics with Bibles. A podcast dedicated to empowering Catholics to read, pray, and interpret sacred scripture with the eyes of faith and reason. I'm Chase Krause. And I'm Ryan Pollock. Let's dive in. What's cracking, everybody? We finally recorded a new intro. It's been like almost a month of having Ryan on the show, and we did it, though. How cool is that intro, by the way? We really should get a raise for this, I think. That's true. You hear that, Father Larry? We should. <laughs> Father Larry, if you're listening, you need to crunch the numbers. I honestly don't know if he's ever listened to this podcast. Go get him. Do you think he knows how to listen to podcasts? We're going to be really owned if it turns out he's been listening. <laughs> he's gonna e- we're going to email him right after this, being like, hey, guys, you guys are jerks. You're, you're fired. You can't, do, you can't do this podcast anymore. Wait, boys. <laughs> uh, well, what's up, everybody? So, yeah, we're, we're still journeying through this book, The Unseen Realm, getting through section three this week. And I think it's going to be a pretty interesting topic this week. I mean, uh, it's stuff. I'm not going to lie. I am like not super prepared insofar as not having read the entire section of the book. So I'm a sinner and I'm an evil, awful person, mea culpa, but Ryan, you're prepared. So that's good. You remember on Scantron tests, would you, when you would just like, you didn't study at all and you would just try (laughs) to like make the best pattern that you could on the on the test. Maybe so we'll be he, doing some of that. The thing today. is, like, kids would get C's, you know, when they did that sometimes, which is really messed yeah, up. They had 25% chance of getting it right. Well, was the so. thing. I had a buddy. He literally put B for every answer. <laughs> and he got a C on the, the test or whatever. This is what's wrong with education. That's right. So this, is, this is why we need a classical model of education. So that way you can't just put B for every answer. And Scantrons really were the worst, though. Uh, they don't have them anymore? I, they probably what else do, do they use? Yeah, they have they to, use right? If they don't have scan I think drones. they do. I'm, yeah. they, they're still the worst. You know teachers aren't going to sit there and, you know, decipher all those without a scan. The worst is when your pencil broke. Did you ever have it on you? Like you're, you're in the middle of, like, shading in a bubble and just snapped on you, and you're just like... You used mechanical pencils, which were cool because you didn't have to sharpen them, but they did break on the regular. Just, they didn't, like, when they wrote with a mechanical pencil, it didn't feel as good. No. Like, it was, like, it was harsh. It was, like, rubbing, like metal on a chalkboard it felt like no we need to go back to actual chalk on actual chalkboards um dude i haven't seen a chalkboard in a long time no we've advanced as a culture we have our penmanship is not but uh, no not dude i i couldn't write in cursive if i wanted to like i can do my my name i'd really have to think about it yeah Yeah. like how to do a z again it's like a weird loop-de-loop thing well the whole thing with cursive is it's supposed to make your writing more efficient but uh i think for our generation it did not Right. Um, it did not. It just made it hard to read. When I when I read my mom's cursive writing, I really have to think about it, and it takes me a long time Dude, to uh, have you ever get, have you ever been given like a note from like a senior citizen type like yes. that genuinely just, they just write in cursive, yes. and you look at it and you're just like, dude, I can't read this. <laughs> like, it's not even the fact that it's cursive; it's the fact that it's like it's like bad. Like it's just like chicken wire cursive. Their, their personal brand of cursive, and you're yeah. like, well, I, this this will be my afternoon trying yep. to read this letter here. It's like you get like birthday cards or something from grandma, and you're like, yeah, I'm sure whatever you wrote, super nice. This is grandma. This is really sweet of you. Yeah, you right. are the best grandma. <laughs> the best. So uh, anyway, now we're done talking about cursive. Um, so yeah, today we're talking about a few things, um, kind of journeying with with Heiser in the book, but also doing what we do in talking about Catholic stuff too. And speaking of things that weren't written in cursive, you might say ancient Hebrew, which brings <laughs> us to our word of the Always day. Always looking for the segue. Which brings <laughs> us to our word of the day, with it, which is Bethel or Bet-El. Uh, Chase, why don't you tell us what Bethel means? So yeah, so Bethel essentially just means like house of God. Um, and so uh, when you look at different, uh, different actually names, like the name Elizabeth is another way to say like, Eli is like Lord, 
right? Beth house. So Bethel house of Lord or L right? Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. So if your name is Elizabeth out there, I really actually very, I like your name a lot. It's very symbolic. Hmm. It means a lot. I always think of a uh, good queen Bess, um, queen Elizabeth in, in English history. Uh, who killed a lot of Catholics, but uh, your oh. associations are probably happier. Yeah, <laughs> I was Saint Elizabeth, you know, like <laughs> to I be sure there were other Elizabeths. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Your, your inner your inner Episcopalian it just comes out and says, "Kill the Catholics." That's right. That's right. <laughs> uh, I also think of uh, Bethlehem or Bethlehem, which is oh, yeah. a house of bread, which of course is where Jesus was born. And the David church hometown. The, and the church fathers go nuts with this. They talk about how Jesus was. Um, born in the house of bread, and he's born and put into a stable, signifying that he's food for the life of the world, and they go crazy with that yeah. typology, which is super cool. We're about to do a lot of similar typological fun, yeah. fun business talking about today's section. So yeah, so basically the three, I mean, these are our goals. We'll see if we actually end up talking about all three of these things in some kind of systematic order, but we'll find out. So uh, the first thing that Heiser points out that is always super interesting, uh, but not exactly new, is when you see the term angel of the Lord throughout the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, um, kind of what that means. Uh, is it an angel? Is it God? Is it both? What is it? Uh, and then diving into kind of like the law and legalism as such, which I think as Catholics is a huge temp- temptation at times. Um, and then finally, if we get to it, cool. I think we will. Uh, we'll talk about like Heiser talks about different realm distinctions and like ritual purity and whatnot. So um, yeah, to start off, I mean, Ryan, can you think of any examples of angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, like when that term is is used? I have a few, but... Yeah, uh, Heiser brings up a couple, and again, these are instances in the Old Testament where you think that a character is talking to God, um, but then sometimes it's referred to as an angel, um, and then it switches back to God, and you're not sure, like, is it God or an angel that he's talking to? Um, The burning bush might be a good one, or or the unburnt bush, the burning bush that burned and was yet not consumed. Yeah, and what's interesting... Yeah, because if you ever notice this, I encourage you, like, just, I mean, read Exodus, what is it, Exodus 6? I'm lost. Exodus uh, 2, that's, or 3, such a lie in Exodus 6. I knew it was like a 3 <laughs> or a 6 or a 9. It was one of those kind of numbers. Exodus 3, uh, which is when Moses, like, encounters the burning bush, right? God in the burning bush. Um, if you ever really, like, notice it, yeah, reread it, and you'll see, like, the angel of the, it says the angel of the Lord. And that's in Greek and Hebrew. It's not, like, a weird translation thing. It literally just says, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in the burning bush. And then, but when he speaks, it says, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, right? The tetragrammaton. Um, and it says, you know, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so it's the angel speaking in the first person as God. Yes, yes. And uh, this also happens in the case of Abraham and he, his three visitors, right, where yeah. the three visitors show up. And I know y'all have seen this icon before. It's uh, Andre Rublev's trinity icon where we have one in my office at home yeah it's the three divine visitors sitting around the table and they're all facing the the viewer and um you know christian interpreters go wild with that one too like what exactly is happening here are these just three normal dudes or is there something like i mean there's something clearly divine about at least one of them right right and it gets interesting too because then also in exodus the angel of the lord is the angel of destruction right angel of death that you know they're in the 10 plagues the last plague was the angel of the lord came and wiped out all the firstborns of of egypt right Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. this is why this is important because uh, we have to distinction with the distinguish like is it an actual angel? Is it God? Was it God himself at qua God as God that came in and wiped out the firstborn? Or was it an angel doing God's will? 
And there's a, there's a couple like reasons for why the original authors would, um, and it's not a mistake. Like we shouldn't think about it as like, oh, well, they just fudged up and they meant to write angel, but they meant God instead or right, something right, like right. that. Uh, it, it's an attempt to account for this idea that's present throughout the scriptures that no man can see my face and live, right? right? So you have all these divine encounters with the patriarchs or the prophets or whomever with the Lord, and they see him face to face. But we know that they can't really see him face to face or they would die because God's presence is just so consuming and overwhelming. So uh, the text seems to say, make quite clear, that the Lord appoints mediators to stand in his presence such yeah. that the people won't be consumed when they encounter him. Yeah, or like you know the, the, the weird passage of Moses seeing the back of God and then his face like was all shiny, bright uh, and shiny. Briny, briny, <laughs> briny. He got, he got gross. Covered um, in salt. I got, I got bright and shiny um, to the, to such a degree that the Israelites were like, "Dude, just cover your face because we literally can't look at you because you're distracting us mm-hmm. um, and you're mm-hmm. grossing us out a little bit because your mm-hmm. face is all bright and shiny." It's always really funny when you look at histo- how historical critics interpret that because they're like, "Oh, he was just very happy and he had a big smile on his <laughs> face and it annoyed the Israelites." And I'm like, "Not that much." I was like, "Dude, like." You're not going to make somebody like cover their face with a cloth. If just they're too happy. Yeah, right? Yeah. And I'm like, let's calm down. Let's uh-huh. um, but anyway, yeah. So maybe Pee Wee Herman. You might, oh, yeah, it's true. You might want uh, him to cover his face if he were too happy. But. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the, this angel of the Lord uh, who appears in the burning bush. Um, so, I mean, might as well just like look at the passage real quick in, in Exodus. So this is what we read. So Exodus 3, uh, we read this, uh, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and lo, the bush was burning. And then Moses addresses him. And then when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses. Mm-hmm. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come nearer. And then he said, a little later on, verse six, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The, uh, and Moses hid his face, right? And then it goes later on, verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who am. That tetragrammaton, right? Um, if you don't know what that means, it's just like in Hebrew, there is no vowels. So the word, we have the word Yahweh, but that's just like, we added vowels to, so the tetragrammaton is like the proper, like formal name of like the divine name. Yeah. You might see it in all capitals in English as Y H W H. That's what they're trying to communicate there. It's just a fancy way to say it. Yeah. 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 So, um, thinking about here, and I appreciate Heiser for bringing this up because this is certainly something that I know, at least I've been tempted to, I've definitely read over this before and not noticed that distinction was happening. You think about, uh, popular depictions of this you think about the ten commandments right you think about the prince of egypt mm-hmm. um, oh great movie yeah yeah i started watching a little bit of the christian bale uh ridley scott christian bale uh exodus gods and kings the other night oh and, throwback and, and preparation for this um still haven't seen the thing as a whole but well, it's uh, 15 hours so i mean <laughs> who has time who has time for that but uh yeah, none of them draw out this distinction. No. You're not given yeah. any indication that there's actually an angel there. Right. Um, there was that series, The Bible, that I think A&E put out a few years ago, talking about Abraham's divine visitors, where you sure. don't really get the sense that anything divine is happening there, or yeah. that there are angels involved. So, right. Yeah. So, um, so I guess there's, there's, a few, there's more than a few probably different interpretive options of this, but the ones that come to my brain 
off the top of my head, um, the first one being, you know, maybe this was like, because a, a, a serif, a fiery one, right? Seraphim, cherubim, fiery ones, like close to God. Th I mean, they would have appeared as a flame. And theoretically, God, because they're always in the presence of God, whatever they said, they could have just been echoing what God said. I think that's a semi-valid. Like if somebody said that as like what they believed, how they interpret this, I'd be like, that's fine. Like, like I, I think that's probably possible. Um, also another possible interpretive option is that it just wasn't an angel at all. Like there was actually no angel involved in that. It was just God speaking out of a burning bush. Um, and, it, and it's worth bringing up the point here that it's kind of tricky to, to know who we're talking about when the scriptures will talk about an angel because an angel just means a messenger. messenger yeah. Angelos in Greek. Yeah. 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 So, uh, you or I could be an angel if we were delivering a message. Yeah. And it, it's basically the same word, almost the same word as apostle, same meaning almost, right? An apostle is a messenger of a certain, and obviously the two different, different words in Greek, but an apostle is an angel. Mm -hmm. An angel can be an apostle, mm -hmm. right? Um, to the angel in the, in the seven churches, right? Right. Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> um, and so the, the option that Heiser brings up, which, um, he never says that he came up with this. He he talks like it kind of, and I'm just like, bro, <laughs> please don't claim this idea as yourself. Um, but I, I like that. I mean, I'm a fan of it. I like it. I'm not, I just, you know, want to attribute it to the person who actually said it first. Um, basically saying that um, this angel was actually referring to the word of God. And he points out to a few other places in the Old Testament where they use the term word of the Lord, right? To speak to like Abraham, right? The word of the Lord appeared unto Abraham and Abraham, what are you doing? Get out of here kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, yeah, Heiser says, you know, he, he links this to the word of God, namely second person of the Trinity, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting though, because he, he reads the prologue uh, of John's gospel in first John as the, this type of word of God imagery, right? Which is interesting because I've always heard it being linked to the Greek logos, right? Um, and it's both and, right? It's, I don't think it's either or. Um, it's just interesting because I never thought about, you know, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, the John one, right? Um, I've never thought of it within the light of the Old Testament phrase, word of God. I've always thought of it as in like logos in Greek, right? Well, and they're, they're different audiences for the text, right? Like uh, a good analogy here is um, St. Paul preaching in the Areopagus where mm. uh, he's preaching to a bunch of Gentiles. And so he doesn't use any, he doesn't quote any scripture right. in delivering his, uh, his good news, which yeah. is kind of like fun and interesting. All of his appeals are to poetry and philosophy and things like that. Yeah. He so the, yeah. So the, uh, the, the use of the logos in John, it, um, it, it's a lot of things, but one thing it definitely is, is uh, an attempt to open the Greek mind to these sorts of ideas who right. didn't have access to the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah. Well, it's funny, just as like an evangelical writer who is always going to dismiss any kind of Hellenistic tendencies of the New Testament, right? He like doesn't even mention that part of the word of God. Like in John, and he didn't spend a lot of time talking about it, but I'm like, bruh, Lagos. It's like, a, it's an important thing, man. Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. But anyway, so once again, I, I agree. I think... Yes, I think that this angel, you can use the word angelos as messenger as namely the word of God, the second person of the Trinity. So Heiser basically says, yeah, it was actually the second person of the Trinity who was like, that was who was speaking in that moment as an angel of the Lord, namely as a messenger of the Father. Which uh, I will say is pretty surprising in this kind of book, right? Because this mm -hmm. kind of book is 
trying to get away from the church's more historical interpretations of these things and right. just show you what's there uh, based on strictly historical data. Uh, right. So he kind of shows his Christian cards, which is which is not a bad thing. No. To do. Yeah, yeah. Well, and so the reason Ryan and I, I was chuckling to myself um, in my biblical scholar brain uh, because when I read that section of Heiser, I, I and I literally sent Ryan this email like as I was reading this. Um, he's essentially saying the exact same thing that Justin Martyr said. Oh, my boy, Justin. Yeah. yeah. And for those that don't know, Justin lived like 1,800 years ago. No, 1,700 years ago? When was he? Uh, Justin is in the 200s. Yeah, so 1,800 so, years ago. Ish. Uh, ish. I want to say 150, though, too. So he's very early. He, yeah, anyway, yeah, yeah, he's yeah. a church father. He's Second like, century. He's yeah. throwback, right? Uh-huh. So if you want to name your kid Justin, that's cool. Um, but he, so he, he has a really long, if you want to Google uh, Justin Martyr, first apology, uh, number 63, you'll get this big section. I'm not going to read the entire section, but I will read this. Um, talking about this passage in Exodus and namely Jesus Christ. He says this, but so much it is, is it written for the sake of proving that Jesus the Christ is the son of God and his apostle being of the old, of old the word and appearing sometimes in the form of fire and sometimes in the likeness of angels. Hey. Yeah. But now by the will of God, having become man for the human race. He endured all the sufferings which the devil uh, instigated and the senseless Jews to inflict upon him. Uh, and then he goes on, who through who though they have it expressly affirmed in the writing of Moses, quote, and the angel of God spoke to Moses in the flame of fire in the burning bush. So Justin Martyr like sees without a shadow of a doubt, Jesus as the person in the burning bush. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Um, it's just funny because every once in a while, somebody will like think they discover something new or like a new insight and I'm like, nah, dude, you just haven't read the Church Fathers. <laughs> <laughs> Always read the Church Fathers. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes uh, it's a grind to read the Church Fathers, but you got to get a good translation that's not lame. That's um, true for sure. But uh, th- there's another great section in here on the burning bush that I think is from Saint Athanasius. Don't quote me on this. I'm pretty sure it's from him. But he talks about how the burning bush itself is a great analogy uh, that gets us ready for Jesus's own incarnation, mm. because you have the divine presence. Um, inhabiting this physical thing, but not uh, destroying it, not consuming it. So the burning bush actually doesn't burn up um, in the same way that God the Son inhabits. Um, it takes on flesh and becomes Jesus, and yet like doesn't destroy. Uh, Have you seen that icon? Which one? So in the East, this is actually an icon of Mary. So you guys should go to... Uh, Austin's religion class here in St. Teresa's. He's an icon in his class. It's um, an icon of the burning bush, but Mary in place of the burning bush and Jesus in her womb. Oh, that's fire. That's yeah. a fire emoji right there. Yeah, that's right. Great. And so it's, but it's what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. So Jesus doesn't burn up. The, so it, it, he's incarnate in the womb of the Virgin Mary without destroying her. And, and our, ba- our boy Thomas Aquinas would say that grace doesn't destroy nature, it perfects it. Right. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I, mean, I don't think many non-Catholics would like the icon of Mary as the burning bush, um, but it, the logic follows, right? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mary's the Ark of the Covenant. Um, yeah, Mary's the, the burning bush. Uh, Mary's just awesome. It was her birthday she's yesterday. Everywhere. It was a happy we, birthday to our we, lady. We got, Abs- a little, absolutely. we got a little cake and we sang her happy birthday with the kids. Um, Lena thought it was her birthday probably, but it's fine. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. We just like to have those like little Catholic traditions, you know, like you, uh, you celebrate your kids' baptism anniversaries, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Give we, them a cake. They're, and they're, Yeah. They're all in the calendar. Uh-huh. So uh-huh. Lena's baptism day is like a week or two after her birthday. Um, 
just because I was like super like we're doing this right away. But then with Eli, we had to wait like three months for that's when his godparents could actually get in. Uh-huh. Like, um, and so I remember like those three months, I was just like so paranoid. I'm like, we need to have a bottle ready at all times. That's like right. God forbid something. I'm like, I'm ready. Yep. I'm yep, ready. Yep, yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's funny. So Eli will have like a second birthday because it's three months later. Whereas Lena, we kind of just have to do like a combined thing. And like we still celebrate, like we don't throw like a party kind of thing. It's you know? like when you, you get uh, your birthday is like right around Christmas. And Dude, your parents Eli, don't know what to do about your presents. Eli's birthday is on December 30th. <laughs> He's not getting a birthday party ever in his life. <laughs> Poor guy. Yeah, sorry, bro, but uh, you were you were born. born. Should have come earlier, pal. That's I don't know. Right, yeah. Or later. Like, it's one of those two options. Um, that's, that's a uh, catechetical hot tip that we have on the show here today. Definitely celebrate your kid's baptismal anniversaries. And if you can, make them cooler than their birthdays. That's right. And if you don't remember your kid's baptismal day, you can literally just like call whatever parish they were baptized in. Yeah. And they have it on record. The records are, it's in the file cabinet somewhere. Check yeah. it out. I promise you it's there because I, we, Ryan and I, we work at a parish and we, we know. It's in, it's in the safe. <laughs> it's in the archives. That's right. Uh, well, cool. So I guess with a little time we have left, um, do you want to talk about the law, law and law legalism? legalism? Yeah, yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Heiser is really good and this is in, uh, if you're reading along in the book, this is in section, uh, page 163 to 170, he's talking about the law and legalism. And I liked it because this is something that Protestant scholars often miss about the law, namely that it was a delight for the people to receive. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were super stoked about it. Like, they loved it. Yeah. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Now, of course, they don't always live up to their end of the bargain, and that's why Jesus came and all of that, and we understand that as Christians. But the idea that the law itself was this crushing, burdensome thing that the people couldn't wait to be rid of is just to misread the, the scriptures at large. And it's also to misread the New Testament, too. I mean, there was, I mean, literally, I mean, you, read the, you read the New Testament. Yes, Paul does talk about the law. And, and once again, it, it, Paul's not a fan of the law, not because of it's a law per se, but because in comparison with the gospel, it is not no longer necessary. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's right. It, he, Paul calls it the, the custodian. Right. Yeah, it like a needed. babysitter. Yeah, it was yeah. needed. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we, Paul admits, like the Paul, the law was needed. Right. I know not sin apart from the law. Right. Um, but once again, Paul recognizes now we have a higher law. Right. We have, and, and in fact, if you're one of those people that are like, oh, we're Christians now, we don't have the burden of the law. Dude, read the Sermon on the Mount, like Matthew yeah. five, six, and seven. <laughs> right. You might prefer the law after you read the For Sermon real. on the Mount. For <laughs> real, it's like you know, it's like, oh yeah, the law told you not to kill. I'm saying, don't even get angry with yeah, your brother. Yeah, that's right. And that's if, right. And if you're listening to this, and you know, think of the last time you were angry with anybody, you just broke the new law. Yeah, like, sure. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, right. So the, Jesus didn't make the make the the law any easier. Mm-hmm. He made it actually mm-hmm. harder. But now we have grace to live it out, right? It, it, it's it's simpler. It's simpler in ways and and more difficult in others. So uh, Christians certainly don't think about uh, examples of ritual purity anymore the same way that they used to. But uh, the kind of like moral ethical demands on our lives are much more strict after, yeah. after Jesus, for sure. Um, but uh, no, the law itself, what, what's Paul's problem with the law? It's not that it's a law. It's not that it tells us to do this or that. Um, but it, it, it exposes our captivity to death, and it doesn't give us the grace necessary to right. live the kind of requisite life that, that God requires of us, right. which is why we need the Holy Spirit to indwell our lives. But that's really important, especially in our dialogues with Protestants, because they already think that Catholics are 
you know, le- right. legalistic navel gazing. Yeah. Um, Which there are some that, that are, I mean, yeah. and, it, and, and it's so hard. Like it's because you want to do the, and the thing is the Pharisees wanted, they were, they wanted to do the right thing. It wasn't that, you know, we read the old Testament or new Testament and the gospels in particular, it's really easy to see the Pharisees as these like punks who were just mean and just didn't like Jesus because he was ruining their fun. It's like, no, actually they were, they were really gen- genuinely just trying to be holy. Were there, was there corruption? Of course there was corruption. The high priest at the time was a punk. Um, cause he was appointed by, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't appointed in the proper way of a high priest was supposed to. Anyway, that's more of history that we're not going to get into. Um, but at the same time, most of the Pharisees and Sadducees were genuinely just trying to live holy lives according to what they knew. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And so as with most Catholics, you know, we have, um, these, these things that make you a Catholic, um, that actually aren't a lot. It's basically, you know, live out the, the moral morality of, of Catholics, attend church on Sundays and Holy Day of obligation, receive the Eucharist once a year, go to confession once a year. Like yeah. in a particular, at least during uh, Lent or Advent. I think it's one of those. Got to go once a year. I think during for, Lent. For confession. At least mm-hmm. during Lent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And like, that's it. That's, those are the four things that make you, and like, that's not a lot, right? But at the same time, it, it's hard because, you know, as to communicate that to others, it can sound like a list. And, and you know, it's important to keep in mind the temporal order of the law if we're going to talk about the book of Exodus. So, um, what God doesn't do is hear the cries of the people enslaved in Egypt and says, and say to Moses, uh, Moses, go tell the people, hear the Ten Commandments. And if they try real hard to keep them for uh, 10 years, then I'll come and save them out of Egypt, right? right. Uh, no, God's grace comes first. Moses is the deliverer first. And the law is delivered on Sinai for a people already redeemed, for people right. who are already learning what it means to be a part of God's covenant. Which is a sign of grace, right? You can't earn it. You can't merit it. It's a gift. It's always yep. gift. Yep. Grace comes first. Our obedience comes after that. And our obedience is necessary for us remaining in this covenant family, right. for sure. And that actually reminds me when you said Exodus. We never actually address whether or not the angel of the Lord was God always or at sometimes, And the answer is it depends, um, <laughs> which is like the, I know is such an unsatisfying answer sometimes. Sure. Um, so, you know, whenever you read in the old Testament and if you ever do someone across the angel of the Lord, sometimes it actually is an angel and other times it could be like God, or sometimes it could be both. Like, so there, if somebody ever says it's definitely X, Y, or Z, odds are they, they haven't really overly studied much. Um, and then, for example, when it comes to uh, the angel of death in the book of Exodus that kills the firstborns, could that have been God acting as God and therefore acting totally justly because what God gives, he can take away? Yeah, it could have been just God acting. It's a different w- word in Hebrew that I'm told. It's the destroyer in Hebrew. I forget. The, oh, man, I, I I'll forgot. have to look that one up. Yeah, I can't. I forgot it. Anyway, take, my, take our word for it that the Hebrew word means the destroyer. That's the word used for the angel of death. Um, so could it have been God doing what God can do? Yeah. Could it have been an, a genuine angel of the Lord enacting the will of God? Yeah. Uh, could it have been kind of a both-and thing? Heiser also brings up um, an example from the book of Acts where the first martyr, Stephen, attributes some of these actions in the Old Testament to, to Jesus in particular. Mm. Um, and, uh, of course, Jesus himself will say, uh, that they wrote of me, they spoke of me, right? right? In, in particular parts of the Old Testament. Yep. So uh, that's all really cool stuff, and it makes you see and appreciate the Old Testament as um, a thing concealed that in some places is uh, illumined and, and revealed right. in the New. And I think that's one thing that, you know, I think one of the big takeaways from this book in general, as we, you know, we, a couple more weeks of it, is, especially as Catholics, one thing that I love about being Catholic is when you read the Old Testament, and you come across one of these 
you know, problematic or dark passages or uncertain parts. Um, the church always is going to speak on things dogmatically when it needs to, right? Um, but when it doesn't need to, it leaves, it, you have a playing field, right? It's like, that's why even, even the days of creation, right? Dogmatically speaking, as a Catholic, you still could believe that the earth is created in seven literal days, right? Like, and you wouldn't be like outside of Catholic, like you'd be still a good Catholic in good standing, right? Yeah. Now, most Catholics understand that it probably was not created in seven literal days yes. because the sun wasn't created until day three. And mm -hmm. anyway, um, but like if, if you wanted to believe in seven, like you could, or you could believe in the day age theory, right? I think yes. that's Augustine, right? Day, um, yeah. mm -hmm. And then Aquinas opposed to, uh, you know, the whole empty and void fill, whatever thing. Um, that, that is to say the days, since in, in, uh, in Hebrew, the word day or yom uh, doesn't necessarily need to be singular. It can be plural. Right. The, the same way we would say today. Uh, your grandpa might say, back in my day, we had to walk up right. uh, one mountain and back down to get yeah. to school again. And, or and, and like, like Bergsma has a different one, which uh, it's basically the building of the temple imagery kind of thing. So the first three days are it's empty and then they'd be filled. And then oh, yeah, right. Right, um, right. And they're all and that's all fine. And so one of the things, if you ever get frustrated reading the Bible, and particularly the Old Testament, the New Testament, I think is, I mean, the church has spoken a bit more about because it needed to at certain points, uh, especially in the Old Testament. And like, if you're doing research and you can't find a satisfying answer, one good keep keep researching, but also uh, know that th we don't need to know the definitive answer of every single passage of the Old Testament to like for our salvation. You know? One might not exist. Right. Yeah. 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 We might not know until we <laughs> yeah. die. You know. Um, and so, and, and, I, and I always you know tip my hat to Heiser and other theologians who are really trying to get to the bottom of these of these passages, they really want to know like, what is, what is God trying to say? What's the literal meaning? Um, which is, I mean, good. And we should do that. Right. But at the same time, also being aware that, uh, you can have an interpretation that maybe you like best without saying that this is the only one. It's so helpful to think of the church's, uh, catechetical tradition and, um, and dogmatic tradition as the, I think you said it earlier, the, the bounds of a boundaries of a playing field. Right, yeah, uh, yeah. Chesterton will say that any good playground has a fence. Right. Of course, all sorts of fun and games can be had on the playground, but the church is there to keep those boundary markers in place for us. So um, when it comes to scriptural interpretation, if the church has not like dogmatically weighed in on something, uh, like the balls in play, you right. know, let's go and figure this yeah. out and have fun with it. And even with like salvation, right? The, the church has never spoken dogmatically on how salvation happens. And, and the only thing it said is, we're, you know, we're, we're not Pelagianists and we're not high Calvinists, right? It's like those, are, that's the playing field. Okay. So on the far left, you can't say that you take the first step. Like that's wrong because like, God does. At the same time, you can't say that you have no part to play and because that's wrong. There's there's some sort of synergy happening there that right. uh, we wouldn't want to put too fine a point on. Right. And, yeah. I, and I obviously, I'm going to say as a Thomist that the, the Dominican is uh, Dominican tradition is clearly the right one here. Um, and, Naturally. And, and Thomas Aquinas clearly got everything right. Um, <laughs> but there are a bunch of Jesuits who would disagree with me, and they're technically still in the church, which is fine, whatever. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, cool. I mean, uh, Ron, do you have any last thoughts or anything you want to throw out there? Uh, if y'all are going to read this book, I mean, we're not doing the podcast as an endorsement of the book. Maybe we haven't said that. Um, oh yeah, definitely not. So we we're, we're, we're not saying like, you know, you must go out and get it, but if you do, um, I hope that you'll pay a special attention to part four here because 
in my humble opinion, it's the best one we've looked at yet. <laughs> There's some really cool stuff in here. Yeah. All right. Cool. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us on this episode of Catholics with Bibles. My name is Chase Krause. My name is Ryan Pollock. And we'll see you next time. God bless y'all. All righty, y'all. Well, that was fun. Thank you again so much for joining us on this week's episode of Catholics with Bibles. Uh, we got like a couple more weeks of, of Heiser here. Uh, so once again, like Ryan said at the end of the episode, uh, if you want to read the book, cool. We're not like totally endorsing it. We just think it's interesting. Uh, and if you have any questions about it or anything, never hesitate to reach out. Until next time, y'all. God bless.